Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. I, I hope you and your loved ones are staying safe and staying healthy during this coronavirus crisis. I, I honestly can't say too much more than that because one of the things I learned in releasing our previous episode is that the situation can change dramatically from the time I record to the time I release, and then again from the time of release and then the time you get a chance to listen. So about the only thing I can say right now that I, I know will make some sense when you listen to this is that I hope you're doing okay and staying healthy or failing that, getting better. Today, I've got a great select show for you. We get to sit down over a beer with Hiro Maida, one of the most insightful VCs in Japan. We caught up with him just as he was launching his new fund, and I'll give you an update on what happened after the show. What, what might be even more interesting, however, is that the predictions Hiro makes in this interview have not come true as quickly as expected but many of them are playing themselves out in slow motion right in front of us. Today we sit down with Hiro Maida and talk about startup accelerators. Now, Hiro's the creator of both Digital Garage's Open Network Lab and the Binos Inception Program. These are two of Japan's best-known startup acceleration programs, but their approaches are very, very different. And naturally, we talk about both the past and the future of startup acceleration in Japan and the critical differences between the good ones and the bad ones. But what impressed me most about our conversation was Hiro's commitment to running his accelerators just like startups. Now, we dive into the fundamental reasons behind the attraction that Japanese VCs now have for Southeast Asian markets as well as the reasons behind what we both see as the coming hard times for startup accelerators and the coming good times for Japanese startups. But I'll let Hiro explain all that in his own words. So let's get right to the interview. I'm sitting here with Hiro Maida of Benos, formerly the man who founded the Open Network Lab with Digital Garage. And today we're gonna to talk a lot about accelerators you're the man that knows. <laughs> Thank you. So thanks for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. Let's get right into it. I'm really interested in your experience in mm -hmm. setting up and running the Digital Garage Open Network Lab Accelerator. Mm -hmm. Why don't you tell us a bit about it and what your goals were in, in starting that accelerator? Yeah, so, so this was uh, back in 2010. So, so, so it was right after the Lehman crisis, right? It happened in, in 2007. And then 2008, 2009 was like everyone, no one was investing in startups in Japan. Right. So it was basically myself, uh, Joey Ito, who's currently the director of MIT Media Labs, and also the founder of Binos, or the former founder of Binos, Teru, and then the, and then the CEO of Digital Garage. Uh, we all kind of got together and we were discussing what can we do, right? Okay, let's back up for a yeah. second. Yeah. How, how did all these people end mm -hmm. up in the room getting together? Because that's a pretty diverse group of, <laughs> of people right there. Other than myself, those three actually knew each other. Uh, and they always wanted to do something, right? And Digital Garage was just moving into their new office. 
uh, and they had some extra space. So, so it actually started off with, what can we do with this space? Okay. Um, and then I got pulled into the, the discussion, and then I was, I was at the time, really lo- looking into Techstars and Y Combinator, right, uh, right. The, the two accelerators in the U.S. that were starting to do very well. I basically proposed that, why don't we just do this in Japan? So you, you were trying to replicate what was happening in, in San Francisco mm-hmm. and in, well, in Boulder in the yeah. case of Techstars, but happening in the States. Mm-hmm. You were putting this together. You were learning as you were going. Mm-hmm. It's been up and running now for five years? Yeah, I think five years, yeah. All right. Yeah, yeah. When you're running an accelerator, how do you measure the success of the accelerator? Is it the return of the portfolio? Is it the number of companies that are still in operation after four years? Mm-hmm. How, how do you measure success from the accelerator point of view? As an investor, the closest way to measure success is return on capital and I guess markups right so like right. How, how much more valuable your portfolio is and and we're right now roughly about like 20x markup so our entire portfolio is is 20x more valuable than we than it initially was all right um, which is pretty good uh, we'll see how much of that becomes cash uh, right. and I'm hoping it'll be somewhere above 10x so that's one way to kind of measure success but I actually think the purpose of an accelerator I mean, we do have fiduciary duties to, to make big returns, but the other thing that we have to do is, is increase the success rate of startups to get to the next phase, right? And so the other thing we look at is actually how many of the companies that enter our incubator or accelerator are able to raise money from VCs, right? right? Um, and I don't know what the exact number is right now, but at one point we had 70% of the companies that go through our accelerator were able to raise their next round whether it was $100,000 or $500,000 or a million dollars. That's pretty, that's pretty good. Listeners in San Francisco mm-hmm. wouldn't be particularly impressed with that number. Yeah. But anyone who's been dealing with startups in Japan mm-hmm. for the last 10, 15 years mm-hmm. knows that's extremely impressive. Yeah. yeah. So we were, we, were, we were proud about that. We were pretty proud about that. Well, actually, that brings up a good point. Mm-hmm. There seems to be a real Series A crunch in Japan mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. What do you think is behind that crunch and what's the best way to solve it? So to be honest, there aren't that many Series A investors in Japan to begin with. Right. There's only a handful that you can... And so what probably happened was we had more seed accelerators emerge, more seed-funded startups. Those seed-funded startups are having a much harder time raising money. Here's the dynamic mm-hmm. I, I see, and let, okay. me know if, let me know what you think. Mm-hmm. The nature of starting a company has changed. You can do it with much smaller teams, mm-hmm. with much lower amounts of capital. Mm-hmm. So... The economics favor not only lots of people starting companies, but investors making lots of very small Mm $10,000 to $50,000 bets. Mm -hmm. So we had a whole emergence of Mm pre-seed, early stage financing come up. But the people who have to step in next and set a price and put in three quarters of a million dollars seem to be the same people that were doing it 10, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, that is the case. I mean, yeah, I mean, there isn't, I don't see that many new funds being formed that invest in this, in the Series A or B range. It's usually the same kind of people, the same brands, pretty much the same people, right? And, and it does seem that most new funds are focused on seed, early stage. Mm-hmm. It's the, 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 the strategy of lots of small bets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But what about uh, some of the larger funds now, the Incubate Fund? Mm-hmm. I mean, these mm-hmm. are funds with hundreds of millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Mm-hmm. Of, 
there's not enough startups to yeah. invest yeah. ten thousand. You can't invest that ten thousand dollars at a time. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not sure what their exact strategy is with with raising a hundred million dollar fund in Japan. My guess is they want to do more in in emerging markets like Indonesia. Yeah. And the other is they want to be they want to be able to fund the full stack. So they want to be able to fund the seed, the Series A, the Series B, and C. So they keep on doubling down on companies that are. Doing well in their seed portfolio. A lot of Japanese investment is going to Southeast Asia mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. What's the draw? Because like Indonesia or the the emerging markets are five years or less behind of what's going on in Japan, and so as an investor, it's it's kind of predictable. Like what are the next things that are going to emerge? And so after the marketplace, it's probably the payment. After the payment, it's probably price comparison. After the price comparison. It's probably some uh, storefront hosting, and after storefront hosting, so on, right? So there's there's a lot of things that you can you can do a lot of pattern recognition with emerging market. Are, are you investing? Well, both you personally and Japanese investors as mm-hmm. a whole, mm-hmm. are they looking to invest in the Indonesian version of Uber? Are, are they looking for not copycat technology mm-hmm. necessarily, but business models that have been proven elsewhere? Yeah, that's pretty much the main draw. The other one is predictable. The second is just the upside. So the growth rate in population, the growth rate in GDP, uh, those metrics are like, especially in Indonesia and India is, is phenomenal. The demographics are fantastic. As an investor, you know, your responsibility, or if you want to really want to be a good investor, like you should shoot for the upside, like the biggest right. upside possible, right? So the logical conclusion you would get to is let's enter a market that's growing and growing fast. When you're, when you're going to the Southeast Asian markets, mm-hmm. what is the exit you're looking for there? Is it a local IPO? Is it an acquisition by a more powerful global player mm-hmm. with the same business model? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you get out? I mean, it's both. So there's going to be M&A activities, but we can also expect IPOs. So what's kind of happening, there's a lot of, there are a lot more companies outside of New York that are being listed in New York on the New York Stock Exchange. So the Alibaba went listed, listed, got listed on right, in, right. In, in, in New York. Probably the next Alibaba will come from India, right? And we may see like an Alibaba equivalent coming from Indonesia. The, the local IPO market is not that attractive, but the New York Stock Exchange is attractive. And we're seeing patterns where more and more companies are looking into becoming a Delaware Incorporated company and so that they can get listed. But then we also see roll-ups, right? So we'll probably see more M&A activities, uh, a larger conglomerate basically buying companies so that they can get uh, market share. In, in, the, in, in the emerging markets. All right, let's talk about the other accelerator you started, which has a very different model. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Benos is, it's a, well, it was a very powerful e-commerce company that's mm-hmm. now pivoted mm-hmm. to be primarily an investment, startup investment firm. Yeah. But the um, inception program mm-hmm. that you led, mm-hmm. well, why, why don't you tell us a bit, a bit about that? Because you can explain it better than I can. Yeah, so Venos, they originally were, were called NetPrice, which is an e-commerce firm back in 1999, uh, got listed on to, in 2004. And since 2004, uh, they started building companies themselves and at, at the same time investing in companies, primarily in the, in the e-commerce ecosystem, right? Right. Um, and we're actually seeing very good successes. Uh, around like 2011, 12-ish, it became interesting for Venos to basically try to make it a process so that they can kind of build more and more companies like that. Okay. Right? And so the Inception program was actually part of that initiative to try to build the next Tenso, the next Brandier. 
Uh, and it's a very, very different model from accelerators. So accelerators, you pay, what, take 5% equity. Exactly. The inception program is the total opposite. So we would take anything from 10 to maybe 70% of the company, right? And all the talent is in-house. And uh, we would try to build subsidiary companies, basically. So, I mean, 70% mm. is... Uh, you know, a lot of founders would be oh, yeah. outraged at the oh, suggestion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when you're saying all the talents in-house, mm-hmm. the founder mm-hmm. would not necessarily be a, a Binos employee, mm-hmm. right? The founder is from outside, and you match them up with design and engineering re- resources mm-hmm. within Binos, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 70% is a big, it's a big chunk. Yeah. So what, what, what value do you add? Well, I, well you know, walk, me, walk me through the process. If I'm a new founder and, and I'm joining this program on the first so, day, what happens? So to be honest, it's not for everyone, right? right. It's not for everyone. Obviously, if you, if you have the capabilities of building a startup yourself, you should go for it. And, and, but the, the founders that we've been able to attract are more people who have a strong interest in building and operating companies, but don't have either the inspiration or the idea that they w- they want to work on basically, but they have more of the passion for operating companies and building companies. So you're searching for more of uh, MBA types. Yeah, Who's I guess the ideal founder. So so the ones who perform well are like ex consultants or ex. Uh, actually, so like one headhunter is actually leading one of the companies we sp- we spun out, and so people who who just likes operation basically, who, who likes to optimize on operation, loves to work with people, loves loves to. Uh, build organizations and those kind of things. And to be honest, they don't have really a, a strong conviction on the idea. Okay. What's fascinating about mm. this is you're describing someone who would not normally be considered an ideal founder at all. Oh, yeah, right? definitely. You know, definitely. You're, you're, you're definitely. saying it's like, definitely. you know, it, it's not, you know, they, they don't have a ridiculous conviction in their, their vision. Yeah. They're, they're more flexible. Exactly. So it's the total opposite of what OnLab would look for. Or right. Like, right. Look for. Yeah, basically it's the total opposite. So, it, you know, usually you want someone with conviction and, and you, should, you should, you know, get someone who, who would basically grow the company until, like, until the end, as, as big as it can. Right. right. And, 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 yeah. So in the inception program, mm-hmm. I mean, what, is, what are the founders bringing? What, are, what is Binos providing? So is the founder bringing the, the idea? And you guys are providing design and engineering skill. Are you got is Binos out there selling the products? Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through a typical case? Yeah. So, so the typical case, we basically have a kind of a, a list of theses, things that we think should be built or exist in Japan. And we would already have developers and designers to kind of prototype the idea and, and validate the idea. And then the founders would come in actually kind of at a later stage. So once the the product is somewhat validated they would come in to basically build the validated product into a company. So a lot of these people who, who got brought in to, to spin out the companies actually came in at a later phase. It sounds like a very similar model to Idea Lab. Yeah, so we were inspired by Idea Lab. Yeah, okay. Yeah, we, we actually visited Bill Gross. Uh, ah, all right. And he was very kind enough to share his knowledge. Yeah, we were very inspired by him. How long have you guys been running Inception program? It's still pretty new, right? It's very new. It's when was that? 2013 or something? We so we actually ran it for just a year, so it's not running anymore. Oh, you shut it yeah. down? Yeah, yeah. We we shut it down. So we spun out two two companies out of the program, and then decided to basically focus all our resources on the companies that are doing very well. Okay. Mm-hmm. Why why do you uh, wind it down? It was very difficult. So <laughs> it, was, it was really difficult. I mean, like, so we have yet to see if, whether or not that's a successful program. This is, no, this is particularly interesting to me because yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen so many companies mm. attempt similar models. Mm-hmm. Okay, Idea Lab, mm. they seem to have done pretty well with yeah, it, but yeah. that's Bill Gross. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I think he'd succeed with any model mm-hmm. you put in front of him. 
Rocket Internet's done mm. reasonably well with yeah, it. Yeah. But what, what was the biggest challenge in that? What? Oh, man. <laughs> First of all, we have a lot of restrictions, right? So one is, is capital restrictions. Because we're a listed company, uh, we have expectations on how much profit we make on the, in the next quarter and those kind of things. So, so the problem uh, of running an incubator-like program like as a public company is very difficult because you kind of become short-sighted. Okay. Yeah, I can when, see that. When a lot of the when a lot of the valuable companies they actually view things much long term, right? They're not profitable for a while, but for us, we don't we don't have that choice. We right, right. we have to be profitable quite quickly, right? And so that gives a lot of restrictions and limitations. Is is one thing. Ooh, and the other challenges are one is, is cultural fit, right? So basically, you know, the company has been around for more than fifteen years. It's really hard to build. A culture that is thriving on entrepreneurship, a risk-taking culture, basically, in a corporation or in a corporate-like environment. Um, well, I could see that, yeah, yeah because I mean, at, at, once you go public, mm-hmm. all the incentives are aligned to maximize the profit for mm-hmm. this quarter. And mm-hmm. Japanese companies maybe don't feel the pressure as strongly as American public mm-hmm. companies mm-hmm. do, but mm-hmm. the pressure is certainly there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When times get rough, yeah. like, wait, why are we spending this on these companies that may May turn a profit in five years' time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, 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 yeah. The reason why we winded down was because there were so many restrictions, and it, we didn't see it as an ideal environment to be building companies. Is is one thing, and the other thing is is because Binos is now out of phase. They had bigger opportunities, like Tenso. So they're Tenso and Brandier, which is doing very, very well. And it was at like now is the moment to be investing more in these two companies. Right? Okay. So yeah. Do you think if you ha- if you could start it again from scratch yeah. with a private company. Yeah. Do you think the model is viable, mm-hmm. but just the problems have trying to run it inside a public company, or is the model itself just difficult to execute on? Um, I think the model is viable. Okay. The model is viable, uh, but it's best to start from scratch. You need to be at a, be in an environment where you can basically build your own culture, right? And, right. and it's hard to build. In an established environment, and and you don't want restrictions on like you know have a certain amount of profit by the next quarter, yeah, uh, yeah, that's... and those kind of things, right? Uh, so, yeah, if I had to do it again, I would probably do it as a private company. One of the common complaints I've heard from people mm. trying to execute this model mm. is that it's very difficult to get follow-on funding mm. when you take your incubated company and you hatch them, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you try to raise a Series A. I've heard that the VCs will look and say, wait, wait, you guys have 70% and they have 30 No, we're not interested. Mm-hmm. Did you run into that? Yeah, yeah definitely, definitely. Yeah, okay. so actually we, so we had a huge adjustment on, on our equity stake, right? So we first thought we, would, we can start off by 70 uh, but we actually had to put it down to somewhere between 20, uh, oh, okay. 20 and 30 uh, Yeah, I mean, as VCs, it, it's obvious. So like as VCs, you want to invest in companies where, or the founders is motivated enough to basically take it till the end right right and, and if, uh, if they someone, feel like they own it right right it's, and yeah they need to they need to have ownership they need to feel like it's their company right the only way the 70 percent model would work i feel is when the company that owns 70 percent is willing to keep on funding this company right so like the the rocket internet model yeah basically yeah right so the rocket internet i think they have a pretty good and interesting model and they're they're willing to fund it themselves sure right, right? sure um although i guess their fundraising from the holding companies fundraising from elsewhere but yeah let's talk about accelerators in general. Mm -hmm. We mentioned earlier, for a lot of reasons, there's been this real boom and spread of accelerators all over Japan. Mm -hmm. There's a couple dozen of them in Tokyo. Mm -hmm. 
what kind of founders should consider joining an accelerator and what kind of founders are better off taking a run at it themselves? So I think I, I highly recommend accelerators to a lot of the founders, especially in Japan. And the reason why is because the support system in Japan is not as good as Silicon Valley, obviously. But like, it's very hard to get advisors who can help you basically go through the process of, of validating your idea, building a product, and fundraising. Because of the lacking of the support system, it's probably best to go to an accelerator. When you're talking about a support system, mm -hmm. does that include kind of the social support mm -hmm. of a lot of the founders I talk to, you know, their, their friends and family were not particularly supportive of their decision early mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. does, that, does that play a big part in it as well? Yeah, or I think so. I think so. So, I mean, it's, it's lonely to be an entrepreneur, right? And, yeah. and, and so, so one is you have a community or a small community of people, at least who's in the same accelerator as you, who supports you and, and where you can kind of riff your ideas or your, your problems. And the other is because a lot of these accelerators are backed by larger companies, it gives a little bit of validation. If you worry about how your parents think of you, then it gives a little bit of validation that, you know, some large corporation is backing you, right? Okay. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there is some of that aspect. Primarily, I, th I feel the startup community in general is not, it's not super helpful to newcomers, right? And, and this, in Silicon Valley, I feel like everyone has this pay-it-forward kind of mentality. Yeah. Um, and it's relatively easier to get a meeting with experienced entrepreneur, whereas in Japan, it's a little bit more closed. Uh, it is. Yeah. It's a shame. It's starting to change, yeah. but it is. Well, mm. this is something else I found, because mm. Japan is very... The whole structure of the society mm. is a very strong concept of inside and outside, mm. right? Mm. Silicon Valley is very open. Mm. Uh, everyone wants to work with everybody. Mm -hmm. Are most of the accelerators in Japan, are they run like a closed shop? Or are they flexible about working with people from other accelerators? Are mentors in one group willing to go talk with um, a different group? Or is that sense of inside and outside still strong within the accelerators? Yeah, I, th I feel like the sense of inside inside outside is pretty strong. Uh, so I don't mm. see much collaboration uh, amongst the accelerators himself. But I see a lot of overlap with mentors, right? So mentors okay. come in and out of different accelerators. The accelerators themselves, I guess, there is a little bit of clan-ish kind of mentality. I guess yeah. there are multiple clans and they're not really working with each other and, and those kind of. I mean, but it feels so instinctively. I'm thinking like, oh, that's that's not good. That's mm. got to change. Mm. But is that? actually causing any damage or is that just kind of the way it is and it's fine from the entrepreneur's perspective i feel like it doesn't make a big difference if as long as you know they have access to strong mentor network right and then yeah. since a lot of these net mentors especially the local mentors they overlap yeah so I, i feel like there's no big difference in terms of access okay so the companies mm -hmm. that graduate from an accelerator mm -hmm. do they stay in touch do they consider themselves like alumni mm. as it were mm. what, what's what's the experience like post accelerator yeah there's very, definitely a strong bond between especially if in, from the same class even within different between different classes of accelerators they 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 interact with each other quite frequently that is good yeah the complaint i hear most mm. often when speaking to to new founders mm. is the difficulty they have in networking for staff networking mm. with other founders networking with other engineers mm. And the fact that the graduates, the accelerators, mm. are continuing on, they're making their own community and growing it mm. is, well, really the only way that problem is going to get solved. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that's happening. Mm -hmm. Definitely.
there's so many accelerators in Japan and mm. God knows how many in the U.S. now. Mm. So from a founder's point of view, how can they tell a good accelerator from a bad one? I think it's very obvious, to be honest. Like, so yeah. it's, you, you talk to a few founders and then ask them which one do you think is the best accelerator and they'll point to you in one direction, right? And so... Uh, well, that, that comes to a very short list of names. Yeah. Usually, both, either in the States or here in Japan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like there's only like one or two really good accelerators, right? And, and, um, yeah. So of the other, God, probably 30-plus accelerators mm-hmm. operating in, in Tokyo right mm-hmm. now... Mm-hmm. So you think the, the majority of them are not providing real value? Yeah, I would say so. The majority of them are started kind of off of either trying to get on the trend or they're starting it because, I don't know, their, their CEO thinks they feel like they have to do an accelerator, right? Or, or those kinds. Of, and a lot of these accelerators are corporate-ran, right? I mean, yeah, but yeah. even Open Air Library is corporate-ran. A lot of, for the majority of the accelerators, it's not ran by the right people. Uh, they're all kind of salary men starting these accelerators, and they're doing it just because either their boss tells them to do it or because it's a trend. One of the things that I think you really got right mm-hmm. at Open Network Lab mm-hmm. is venture capitalists and corporate guys kind of running it. Mm-hmm. But you made sure from the very beginning that there was a steady flow of entrepreneurial expertise mm-hmm. involved in coming through. Yeah. And, I find that most of the incubators here don't really have that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was almost accidental, to be honest. Like, it was because I was clueless, you know, <laughs> the only people I can seek for help are people who've done it before, right? Or built companies before uh, yeah, yeah. and those kind of things. So I really relied on mentorship, mentors, right? And, and mostly because I had, I had no idea what I was doing. Um, <laughs> now I have a, better, a little bit of a better idea. Well, you know, I think... <laughs> Not knowing what you're getting into is both a blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> it, it lets you achieve so much more, and it makes you work so much harder yeah, <laughs> than you ever yeah. would have otherwise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the program did evolve a lot. Uh, I feel like it's now a much better program than it, it was, you know, four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. All right. With so many incubators, mm-hmm. and it, this is true in Japan and the U.S., mm-hmm. it's just a matter of scale. Do you see a shakeout coming in the market? There are... Not that many viable startups coming out, mm-hmm. and there are so many incubators yeah. throwing yeah. little bits of money at yeah. them. Yeah. Pull out your crystal ball. What do you see happening to accelerators in the next five to ten years? So what's going to happen is probably 99% of the accelerators are going to either shut down or be almost non-existent or inoperable. Or the the best entrepreneurs would go to the would try to get into the best accelerators, right? And then right. there's only maybe one or two really good accelerators, and there aren't enough entrepreneurs that can basically fill in thirty different accelerators, right? So they're probably going to enter the the top two accelerators right, out right. of the thirty, and so the rest of them would probably seize operation in some way. But see, that's, that's going on like right now. Yeah, I mean, and right now is the moment. We're yeah. still seeing new accelerators opened up all the time. Yeah. What, what do you think is going to be the trigger that's going to get most of these accelerators out of the business? It's hard to say. I mean, obviously, if there's any correction in the public markets, since the, a lot of these companies are, are ran by public list companies, there, mm. there would be some response to that. I feel like we'll continue to see more accelerators because people feel like there's still opportunity and I think I actually do think there's still opportunity to build a really good a really really good accelerator uh, in Japan and well so, so yeah. okay are, are you, so you built two of them so far are you do you have plans for another <laughs> uh, no comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> come on come on <laughs> but you're thinking about it probably not an accelerator format okay uh, not an incubator format either 
Yeah, but I do feel there's still. I feel like the number number one spot is is still fillable. Okay. Yeah. I look forward to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you a few like really big yeah. Japan questions, yeah. right? So, what do you think is really driving this startup boom in Japan now? And do you think it's something that's that's permanent, or do you think it's going to be? A fad, kind of like it was uh, around 2000. Mm. It's definitely very different from the 2000 bubble or boom. Yeah, because I mean, we we know much more about building, especially internet companies, right? Sure. And so, and people are, are still kind of scarred from that experience. So, very everyone's still relatively conservative and funding and those kind of things. Well, I have noticed mm. that Japanese mm. investors they might they are conservative. They、mm. might miss out on some of the big deals,、mm. but they they tend to place more sensible bets.、Mm-hmm. Exactly right, and 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 because of that, I feel at like, least in their domestic investments, some of the stuff they invest in the states is another matter. Yeah, that's, that's a different different story. <laughs> so we probably won't see anything like like a bust going on. So that's probably the biggest difference. But I do feel like we're going to see steady growth in the number of startups being built,、uh, steady growth of venture capital funding. Things are changing, right? Things are really changing. So, so the Sony's or you know the the larger companies are not becoming such an attractive choice of, for career, right? No, it, right.、Yeah. And, and and back then, you know, it was all about you know picking one company and spending thirty years there, right? But now it's becoming less like that.、Uh, well, it's not really an option anymore. Yeah, right. right? And the whole and, lifetime employment thing is a thing of the past. Exactly. And so the idea of stability is is kind of fading away. I feel like in a culture very slowly though, very very slowly. I feel like we're going to see more and more people、uh, looking into alternative、uh, alternative options. Entrepreneurship is becoming a viable option, or almost not, I wouldn't say stable, but yeah, it's an option that's actually you know realistic, and and、uh, we'll probably see more growth. Do you see it becoming more socially acceptable? In I mean, in our circles,、mm-hmm. obviously,、mm-hmm. entrepreneurship is very socially acceptable,、mm-hmm. but. In broader Japanese society, do you see it becoming a a normal career choice? Maybe in twenty years. Yeah. Maybe in twenty years, we still have so much potential. Like Japan, like I, I'm a little bit disappointed we're not growing faster in terms of、uh, just the number of startups and the number of venture capital funding. Like we have such great infrastructure, it's such a great environment. I mean, the public、yeah. market is not. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good, right? I'm I'm surprised we're only, we're one tenth of the venture capital spending of the U.S. because our population is like a third, right, of U.S. Right, right. right? So we should be doing we sh- we can do two x or three x more, and and there's still more potential in Japan, and I feel we'll get there. It's just it might take twenty years until we get there. <laughs> I hope it doesn't take that long. <laughs> so, but, but do you think the we we're talking about the venture capital investment?、Mm-hmm. Do you think it's primarily the problems the supply side? There's just not enough good companies to invest in yet. It's, it's yeah. both. You know, not enough entrepreneurs that are looking to start companies, and not enough venture capitalists that are looking to fund these companies. So、mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, a, a. It's both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. For the young Japanese、mm-hmm. entrepreneurs、mm-hmm. who are starting companies mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. what's the the most common mistake you see them making? It could be because it's kind of engraved in our in our DNA or culture, but they look for perfection. Okay. Or, yeah. So they 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 look for a perfect product or a perfect solution, or it has to be in at least like built in the way they initially planned until they launch it or have some customer use it,、uh, when they could have probably tested a lot of it 
before that, like a lot faster. So they well, could, yeah, they, the, they, the idea of a minimum viable product is it's hard for some people to accept at first. Yeah. So I think yeah, actually, so so the concept of MVP is is probably the hardest part of teaching in Japan. I mean, it's it's starting to become people are getting starting to get used to it. But like initially, when I was running the accelerator, like a lot of my my work was actually like trying to redefine MVP for them, right? You right. Know, you, yeah, you actually can do this, you know, using some line chat or like something else, those kind of things. You know, like you don't even have to build a product to even provide your MVP to your customers. Uh, yeah, so it's it's basically they they feel like they need to build something. They feel like it has to have all the specu- specs that you know uh, they initially planned and, and those kind of things and. Uh, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, uh, I, I see that as a, as a big pitfall. So they, they need to let go of the need for perfection. Exactly. Well, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. let me ask you, if there was one thing you could change, mm-hmm. uh, if I gave you a magic wand, huh. right, and there's one thing you could change about Japanese culture or society or legal system or anything at all to make things better for entrepreneurs... What would it be? To be honest, like I, I wouldn't change a thing. Really? Um, because I do feel we have potential. We can probably become three x better than where we are in in every metric. Uh, so you think everything's kind of on the right path? I feel like we're on the right path, and we just need like some agent that would accelerate things, right? Either it's a person, or yeah, it could be a per- yeah, most likely a person, right? Um, yeah. And it's probably my my job to do that. So, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and so no, I would I really wouldn't change a thing. Like even if the supply of venture capital increases by two x, like is that really going to change anything? Like maybe a little bit, right? And, and but yeah, it needs to have the supply of the startups to increase along with it, right? And, and those kind of things. So yeah, I wouldn't change a thing. That's awesome. Yeah. No, I, I mm. think that Japan is on the right path. Is mm. a wonderfully optimistic note to to end on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Mm. So, um, listen, thanks so much for sitting down with me. Yep, thanks. It's fantastic. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. And we're back. Now, Hiro left us with a bit of a cliffhanger at the end regarding what he plans on doing next. Reading between the lines, it's not too hard to see that he has something big planned. Now, what fascinated me most about Hiro's story was his willingness not only to admit that he did not know what he was doing early on, but to embrace it. To embrace your own ignorance and incompetence, and then scramble like crazy to improve, and then to keep improving, even when you knew you were the best at this point. The willingness to bite off more than you can chew, and then chew like hell. Okay, time for some updates. Both in the market and for Hero himself. We've indeed seen a thinning of the herd in terms of accelerators globally. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say that there's been a thinning of the herd in terms of the accelerator business model. There are plenty of programs, plenty of good programs, that brand themselves as accelerators. But very, very few of them are paying the bills from their venture capital investments. It's, it's quite telling that since Hero and I first sat down almost five years ago, there have been no new challengers to the accelerator incumbents. And that's not likely to change anytime soon. Hero himself is doing well. At the time of our interview, he was just about to launch his new fund, which became Bnext, which 
actually became several funds focused on investing in Southeast Asia. Things worked out pretty much as Hero predicted. But there's been one interesting development. Hero's most recent fund, the All-Stars SAS Fund, is, is focusing on Japan again. Things have changed a lot since we first spoke, and we'll see if we can get Hero back on the show to explain exactly what happened. If you want to talk more about the future of accelerators or the future of SAS, Hero and I would love to hear from you. So come by disruptingjapan.com slash show 161 and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee you that Hero or I or maybe both will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook, but, but even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan has grown not by social media marketing or advertising, but because listeners like you enjoy it and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan. <laughs>